AMU. American Military University is proud to present The Veteran Edge. Welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Larry D. Parker, Jr. Today, we're going to talk about the experience of a naval officer transitioning from uniform to success in the civilian sector. In the spirit of the podcast, we're going to find out our guest's perspective on his military service and the edge it provided him in being successful after his service in the military. My guest today is Dr. Wallace Burns, who is known to us and to some as Rope. Rope is a retired Naval officer of 25 years, a true supply chain management and logistician scholar practitioner. He practiced and led supply or logistics related units throughout his Naval career and continued to consult and teach within the field since retiring in 2017. An award-winning and published professor of logistics and supply chain management within the Dr. W.E. Boston School of Business, I would like to stress that his rank is a full professor. I was actually uh, part of the university to witness his advancement, and that is an acknowledgement of the highest professional ranking as a college instructor. So again, congratulations, Rope. Rope, it's great to have you on the podcast. It's my pleasure, Larry, always. All right, well, well, let's start our conversation by talking about you, the man, the Navy veteran that um, served around the world, I want to first thank you for your service and to give the audience a better perspective of the answers you're going to give us about your success and how you got here. Let's talk a little bit about where you came from and how you even started. Why did you join the service? Uh, Larry, as many military folks uh, do, many in my family served. My father was a, uh, an Air Force officer. He was actually an Army Air Corps officer when they transitioned to the Air Force. He rolled over as an officer in the brand new Air Force. I think it was in 47, maybe in 46. So he was an Air Force officer. I had two uncles I grew up with that were both Navy men and both uh, were on boat units that went, went up and down the rivers in Vietnam. So I got to hear a lot of their stories. In high school, I went to a school in New Orleans called Jesuit High School that had a Marine Corps ROTC program. And so I did that and I got as high as the second in command of that battalion. And it was funny, the, the officer in charge of that was a Marine officer named Captain Richard Neal. Richard Neal went on to become General Neal, who was General Schwarzkopf's primary spokesman during Desert Storm. Yeah, so that was a, a guy that I really learned a lot from. In fact, Gunnery Sergeant Cressioni, who just uh, died, as a, as a matter of fact, a couple of years ago. But he was the one that, that really got me hooked on the Marines and hooked on military service. He also served in Vietnam, and so he spent a lot of time telling all of us ROTC cadets about what the real Marine Corps was about. And it, it was something I wanted to do with every fiber in my being by the time I graduated from high school. So I went to college and actually decided to, to do Air Force ROTC because they didn't have a Marine Corps ROTC. And so I did Air Force ROTC for three years. But I met a girl and decided not to go into the military and, and accept my commission at the end. So long story short, once uh, Desert Storm came and went, right after it went, you know, I told my wife, uh, I was married for several years. I told her that 
I, I blew my my chance to get into the military as a youngster, but I always wanted to. And then it turns out that if you had a master's degree in business, the Navy had a program where you could come in and over the course of the first two years, get the equivalent of another master's in Navy business and then become a ready for sea supply corps officer in the Navy. And so that's what I did. I joined the, the military when I was 34 years old as, as an ensign. Wow. Now, I wasn't familiar with that program. And you actually led to that next question because I was listening to you and Sounded like you you started out as an army brat, just like I was as a as a kid, and then you had Air Force family, and I was wondering how how we got back to the Navy. That's uh, sounded like a great program back then. Hey, Larry, I actually looked. I really tried to go with the Marines first, but the Marines had a program that you had to be thirty five by a certain age, so that you could have, I think it was twenty four years good service by the time you were sixty, and so the Navy's was twenty years service uh, or 25 years, whatever it was. I just can't remember the exact number, but I just made it in by the Navy's requirements, but I couldn't make it in based upon the Marine Corps requirements. And to be honest with you, I didn't even check with the Army and, and uh, Air Force. As soon as the Navy took me, I was in for the Navy. Hey, that works. Whatever it takes to get to where you want to be. And that really answers you know, the question, why Supply Corps? Because people go to it for different reasons, and it sounds like you were more business-minded. And in this program, it allowed you to not only build upon the education that you already had, gave you credentials, additional credentials. So that's great. I often hear that individuals join the military because of education that they're going to pursue. You know, that's mostly those that enlist. But you don't get to hear a lot of additional credentials for commissioned officers. So just curious, do you know that that program still exists? It does. Uh, as a matter of fact, it worked so well that Larry, when I was in 05 and I was striking for 06 several years ago, it turned out that uh, I was one of the 06s or 06 selects that was selected to serve on that community that rated uh, potential folks like I was to bring them into the service with an, already having a master's degree. And it turns out that they had done too many. <laughs> so that the folks that came in after me, probably 10 years after I did, came in in such a groundswell that they were actually having to, unfortunately, cut it off after 05. They weren't allowed to go up higher uh, unless they were a very, very quick hot runner, a very, very competitive. And as a matter of fact, even willing to augment to the active core or the active service. So it worked so well that bottom line that it, it actually had to be curtailed. But as far as I understand, Larry, it's still in place. The, the supply core components do a lot of things that are very conducive to bringing folks in later, for example, advanced degrees, business degrees. But also much of our mission, Larry, is a reserve mission, believe it or not, in the supply world. We do things like cargo movements, cargo handling, ship offloads, onloads, duty that by definition is temporal, meaning you stand up as a battalion and you go to a tour in country, or you go as part of a smaller unit and you do an offload of a ship in Hawaii, for example, which isn't conducive to using active duty folks. It's actually tailor-made for the reserve side of the house. So it turns out, even though I was a reserve naval officer, 06, by the time I retired, I had served a total of almost six years boots on the ground in the Middle East, over six deployments. 
In every case, it was a hostile tour in support of whatever the major command was that was running the operation. And my expertise in the supply world, I was probably one of the lead DLA expediters to where my job was to go and serve, a, for example, in, in Iraq. I was Camp TQ embedded with the Marines, and my job was to get a list of high-priority items that needed to get on a plane in, in Columbia the next morning and fly into theater. And so my job was to fast-track requisitions and so forth for the Marines to get high-priority items. For example, they may be running out of throat protectors. You know, the Marines, I think they ate those things for dinner. But for whatever reason, the, the throat protectors didn't last very long. And that was just an example where the general would call me up and say, Come in, Commander, I need some throat protectors here in two days. And that, that was my job, sort of a thing. Even though I was reservist augmenting in support of the Marines, I was right in the middle of the thick of it because of the logistics work that we do required advanced degrees in many cases, but it also required advanced knowledge of the supply systems that anything the, the military can't provide itself in the next week, provided to themselves locally by their own distribution operation, automatically rolls over into the wholesale military sourcing. And that's all DLA. And that's where I came in. Anything the Marines needed, in, in the example I gave you, of any sort of an urgent nature, I would get a disc of items from a supply clerk that was supporting this. Uh, I think they called it an SMU. I'm, I'm forgetting what the name stood for, Larry. Uh, but it was a Marine SMU that, by the way, I'll give you a little hint. The SMU was a very tight group of enlisted Marines who did the work, same work that some of the supply sustainment battalions that I worked with from the Army and others. The Marines were just set up to do a great deal with a few and with little money. You know how that goes. But I can tell you firsthand, I, I saw it in action and they were always very appreciative Uh they always had a cigar waiting for me when their pallets came in, and the Marines could work the system like no one other. Long story short, my experience, even though it was actually reserve-based, I was activated so many times that I consider myself as an 05 and 06 as an active member of the service. Well, I appreciate that, Rope. And for those listening that may know my background, I was a supply officer in the Marine Corps. And just to help out with that acronym that not, might not know what the SMU is, that's a supply management unit and that's SMU, what we use. And that's, that's exactly what he's saying, that, that next level of supply to get you your parts. And that really helps me understand how we as services work together. You served as what many of us in, in our field uh, would call the expediter. We get out there, we can't get it, and it's taken a while to come. And it's that interface with that wholesale or the outside, the service supply chain. And those are the individuals that if you can't find it or you can't get it, they're going to make sure you get it. And so I appreciate, I know when I served, but I know those individuals that you served with truly appreciated that. Let me add one more small Marine story just so you can appreciate it. I got in trouble at Camp TQ in Iraq because we made a nice stink to CENTCOM telling them that they kept shipping our items in mixed pallets, meaning it would be items that were earmarked for the Marine units, but it could also have been items that were earmarked for Army units. And when they tended to mix the pallets and they put it into a crisp yard or a yard where you picked up their items, the Army saw an item that had their item on it 
they would just take the pallet. They didn't go in there and, and find their stuff. They just took the pallet. So we made a huge stink. And, and uh, I told the general that I would order that no pallets come to TQ for the Marines unless they came as pure pallets. And this was not the uh, policy <laughs> of CENTCOM in 2005. I can promise you because their heads blew off at Central Command because uh, an 04 who wasn't even a Marine was telling the ELA expediters how to get things in the theater. And I said, hey, guys, you can send pallets in 10 times if you'd like. Be my guest. Problem is that they're not getting into the units unless they come in as pure pallets. And it turned out that CENTCOM would now lay out their pallets in their distribution centers, and they would lay them out until the pallet became full meaning it may take an extra day, but in any event, they wouldn't send anything except full pure pallet to the uh, units in theater. And I take credit for making that policy change because it was doing a lot of wasteful cargo movements. The units weren't getting serviced. So I just wanted to let you know that sometimes policy changes if you're doing the right job and you have the right follow-through and backing. And I had the backing of my Marine General in Camp TQ. And so CENTCOM very quickly stood down and, and complied. No, that's a great story because it's an example that policy can be set sometimes, but it's the individual that's on the ground that sees how things are happening that can make the difference because we often see something that might be odd-sized or packaged a certain way or just even the layout of your lot may dictate something changes and it won't be the same as it is in a PowerPoint. The individual on the ground is going to have to be able to make that call to make some adjustments. And so I appreciate that. Well, as we really get to the focus of that transition, that ability to take all those experiences like that and turn you into a successful veteran, as I'm listening to you, education was a big key of bringing you in. Did you complete any other education while you were in the service or were there particular training that you completed that better prepared you for life after this service? Terrific question, Larry. Absolutely. I wouldn't have got into the service without going to school at night many years ago and got a master's degree in business. So I, I wouldn't have got in in my particular path without a master's degree. But while I was in, Larry, I earned a second master's that was actually in logistics. And so I did that and also got a, my doctorate while I was still in the service. In fact, I completed my dissertation and defended that in late 2014 while I was still in service. And in fact, one of the intermediate items I had to do, I did via a phone call while we were undergoing a mortar attack in Afghanistan. So you kind of do what you have to do, but I had set it up to be able to utilize the items that were set up for the military person. They provided moderate internet connectivity when you weren't in the hard field, then they set it up so that it was very easy to be able to connect to take online courses or hybrid courses that enabled me to take care of my educational goals and, and objectives actually while I was serving. So in my case, I emphasized education to the extent of a, an additional master's, a terminal degree. And Larry, while I was there, I also earned four certifications that I thought would help in the areas that I wanted to practice. And so I did that as well. So to answer your question, I think I utilized every cent of my post 9-11 GI Bill, which in effect paid for a second master's and a doctorate. 
Well, that's excellent. That's truly not leaving any money left on the table. That's utilizing your benefits to the fullest. And I'm just about to touch on that transition where you become a, a veteran. But to give context, you said that you came in a little bit later than most. That plan that you spoke of, where you deliberately pursued education and things of that nature, was that something really promoted by the service? Or when did you determine this is the path I'm going to need to take? And did someone help you with that? Uh, Larry, about the 10-year mark, I was in my second or third year as an 03. And it was at that point that I realized that serving in the military is not a guaranteed thing all the way to retirement. You've got to make grade at certain steps. I got a sense of urgency about 10 years in, in the event that I wasn't competitive. You know, 04 is pretty much a certainty if you do a good job. Making 05 or 06 was really based upon numbers and where you would fit. In other words, you had to have a job available. Can be company commanders, battalion commanders, regimental commanders, and division commanders. Those things are handled by officers of a certain grade, and there has to be an available billet for you to do before you can get promoted. So when I was halfway in, I realized, I think I'm doing a good job and I'm, I'm, I work harder than as anybody here. The problem is I knew it wasn't a guarantee. So I'd started looking and found out there is a plethora of opportunities. There were multiple opportunities on base to go to school at night. There were multiple opportunities on ship. In fact, they brought instructors on ship, college instructors on ship to teach courses now, there weren't many of the higher-level courses, but there was no reason on earth if you were an enlisted sailor, 04, who's just getting cranked into his career and didn't have a degree, there was no reason in the world if he was motivated and had a little bit of initiative that the opportunities were presented. It was just a matter of what did you do with your off time? Did you study and, and set goals and meet those goals, or did you not? <laughs> it's kind of a Boolean concept. And in my case, my Boolean decision approach was to go all in to maximize the amount of education I could get while I was in. As a matter of fact, Larry, funny story, when I was mobilized to Afghanistan for 13 months as the commander of all DLA forces in Afghanistan, and I had a budget, by the way, uh, three times the operational budget for the CENTCOM general. So it cost more for food and for bullets and beans and food and fuel three times more than it did the cost to uh, outfit the troops there. So the school, I actually was got my first offer of employment, Larry, during the tail end of my mobilization in 2015 is when, when I got offered a full-time position with uh, American Military University. And so I told them I would certainly be glad. I'd probably want to take a little bit of less of a full load. It was an example of where not only did I seek education while I was uh, in the military, it was in the case where I landed teaching position while I was mobilized and while I was in a hostile country. And so there was a lot of times from either late at night or early in the morning, I was doing schoolwork before I mustered the troops, <laughs> to give you an example. We've been talking to Dr. Wallace Burns. We have to take a break for a moment. 
In the military, I was part of a unit that had my six. When someone has your back, you feel confident and prepared. As students of American Military University, over 60,000 veterans and active military know how important that is. With a dedicated veteran enrollment team to help me move forward with purpose, providing the right structure to ensure I gain career-relevant industry skills so I can focus on what's ahead. Now, I'm moving with authority in this next mission without looking back because American Military University has got my six. Get started today. Go to amuonline.com veterans. Hi, we're back. We're talking with Dr. Wallace Rope Burns about the Military Veterans Edge. Let's get back to the conversation. Well, that is an example of exactly what I was talking about when I read your bio and gave an intro that, you know, that scholar practitioner, the individual that's on the ground, that's doing it, and that can actually say that they've put a lot of those uh, principles into practice. So, all of that provided more context. And so as we focus on that transition, you know, becoming that veteran, what was your transition from the service like? I know there's there's a program, I think we all of us who are veterans, we know, but what was yours like? Was it was it a good program? Larry, it was. There's one thing the Navy does when your career ends is probably a year before it ends, they start a formal transition sequence of events that prepares the veteran for not only landing, but like I like to say, every veteran, because of the skills that are obtained when you serve, you really do need to work extremely hard because I think it's crucial that a veteran land, like I say, land well. In other words, you don't want to land just to bag groceries if in fact you have, you're an electronics technician and you work with a high level of network connectivity. My point was, I think it's crucial that a military person take advantage of the networks that the military would create and to seek positions that can marry up to what you learn in the military. By the way, a lot of that is leadership. Most folks only give short shrift to the term leadership and don't know what it means to be a small unit leader, to be a company commander, to be a battalion commander, to be a division commander, you name it. The military teaches leadership and a sort of leadership that's called servant leadership that really means that you're not only a leader, but you're a leader's leader. You tend to work very well with the people you work with because you're one of them, you came from them, and it's an effective form of leadership that military folks get in spades because that's who all their leaders are in most cases, and that's the type of leaders they become. So one of the things I think a military person should do to land well it's to look at your at your skill set, but also don't downplay your leadership skills and your ability to do hard jobs. When you put a, a list of things that, what does it mean to land well? In my case, it meant find something that matched my skills, find something that I want to do, find something that was hard, that mirrored what I did in the military. I don't mean hard physically, but hard. Something that was a challenge, something that had a, a nice risk and reward associated with it. And then also uh, utilize your leadership and your military connections to land well. And, and by the way, many military folks realize that the hiring managers that they best can present their wares to are, are ex-military who know what it means to lead a squad in combat, for example. And so that's not necessarily possible in all cases. But if you go to job fairs and you do other things, there is a, a sort of a military network that in some small way looks after its own to help them land well, because in many cases, the military member is 
pivoting significantly from what they were used to doing to what they're going to do next. You're not going to go from being an infantryman and you're not going to find that sort of a job unless you're going to be a contractor back in the same central area. You're going to have to find a job where you've got to socialize and integrate into a new world. And it's not a military world. You can't pop up and scream at your supervisors, not that you do in the military. I'm just saying there's a different culture that I think that needs to go into the equation. And military folks need to be perceptive to make sure that they're different, but they're also capable of doing the, the tasks that the new job is going to require. And to break through that barrier from military to non-military, you've got to sort of start acting and being a civilian. But it has nothing to do with your look. I'm talking about your, my doctorate is in leadership, uh, interdisciplinary leadership from Creighton. And so one of the things that I've done a lot of research on is, believe it or not, is bad leadership. What entails bad leadership? And so one of the things that bad leaders do is they tend to typecast military people right off the bat, positively or negatively, depending on their background, normally to the detriment of the military person. So you have to go in, like I tell every military person I talk to, and you now have to please equally several masters. You've got to please your God. You've got to please your wife. You got to please your kids. You got to please your boss. You know, when you're in the military, you have to please your military boss. But now you have to start pleasing all of them equally well. You can't pick one and say, I'm a military guy and I, that's what I do well. You can't do that. You got to be equally adept at all facets to be able to fit into new employment arrangements so that you're able not to be typecast by these bad leaders. Now, a good leader will see somebody with a great deal of potential and probably hire the person anyway, because they understand you're hiring a capability. You're not hiring what somebody did. You're hiring for what they can do. Most bad leaders, uh, they're looking for the easy way out. They're looking for decisions that meet their bias. They're doing all sorts of things that aren't going to be conducive for military folks to, to be successful unless the military person sort of shapes their approach to please all aspects, including that leader. Find out what that leader, even if it's a bad leader, what that leader's push points are and, and focus on those. Don't be strident saying everything I do is the way I learned it in the military. You have to be smart about it is what I'm getting at. So that's sort of a side rant, Larry, and, and how you get hired. That's important because, again, we're talking about the veteran's edge. We know that just as individuals thank us for our service, we know our service changes us. None of us enter the service and leave the same individual. So there's a change that happens, and I appreciate you speaking to that. With those nuggets of information, I'm going to hit you with one more question that really focuses on your success, that transition, and then we're going to focus on the major bits of guidance or nuggets of, of information you want to leave us with. So with that, I've had this notion that veterans tend to fall into four immediate categories as they leave. I'm sure the Navy is pretty much like the Marine Corps in all services, that the commander has to usually counsel individuals as they're leaving, um, right before either re-enlistment or as they're considering leaving. I know first-termers anyway. And we usually ask them, what are your plans? And I just want to kind of see if I get your concurrence here, and then I'll go to the next question. There are four categories. Student, government contractor, corporate, and when I say corporate, it's like some civilian job away from the military, or entrepreneur. They're going to start some kind of business. Would you agree that that's typically how individuals fall out? 
Yeah, Larry, I think that's a good list. I would add one thing about the entrepreneurs. I, one of the things that I hear from folks that are, you know, I used to talk to my unit members all the time is in many cases, they, you mean by entrepreneur, they mean by just going into business for myself. And in many cases, they don't even know what that business is. So one of the things I would say is they have an entrepreneurial spirit, but I, I don't think they have a plan of actually how to do it. And I see a pitfall in that. 90% of all restaurants fail anyway. Can you imagine what percentage of military startup restaurants fail? It's probably higher. But what I'm getting at is so that's a, a touchy area because when you leave the military, you normally don't have a ton of capital. And starting businesses normally requires some capital. And so I would say, yeah, that's what I think what you're hearing, though, in the entrepreneurial section is, is they just want to be their own boss. That's how I read that, Larry. I don't know whether that's entrepreneurial, but I think it's now they've, they've been in a, a big organization. You know, they've been told to get up at five in the morning and run. And now they're looking at being able to dictate their day as being their own boss. And I think that's what they're really aiming for. Although I, I do know of, of uh, several folks that did start their business. For example, I knew a, a military supply officer, Navy supply officer, who, while he was in service, got a physical therapy all the way up to the point of his internship. And then as soon as he got out, he took his internship. And then he now has three or four clinics that are opened up on the Mississippi River between New Orleans and Baton Rouge. That's somebody that had a vision. He knew what the educational requirements were, and he had a plan. So I'm just saying that person would fall directly into the entrepreneurial bucket that you mentioned. But my fear is many military think entrepreneur, but really are thinking more their own boss. And what I find interesting, that actually has been on the books for a while. Definitely for another discussion, I'd like to have you back uh, to, you know, they were going to utilize the GI Bill. Now that's been out there for a couple of times, or at least been proposed to utilize the GI Bill to qualify for a business loan. I don't know exactly where that legislation is. Someone sent it to me recently. I know just doing a quick search it was proposed like uh, six years ago, seven years ago, actually even before then. And then I think it's been brought back again for individuals to be able to utilize that. Now, my only concern is exactly what you just said. Individuals who are not skilled in opening a business, I would really hate to see them, I guess no other word, but squander those benefits on something without being properly trained. At least with a degree, I know you're walking out with a credential. You pass your courses, you're going to get a credential. I would hate to see whatever the dollar amount that you have to spend to go out and open one of those businesses that you said had a lot, a high failure rate, and now they have nothing. So I would hope that if that becomes the case and that comes to reality, that there is a requirement to get some kind of certification that you were trained before we put that forth and or that there's some other kind of restriction there. So so that's an aside for those that want to do their own research. That would be something for you to look at. Last question I have for you is, you know, we just mentioned those, those the student, the contractor, the corporate entrepreneur. Why did you choose to go your route and you've been such a success? I know you mentioned early on that you, you felt like you were going to teach. You mentioned that earlier in your career. So I guess about the 10 year mark and you stayed consistent with it. What, what drove you that way? Yeah, in my case, it was something I did in the military. I was 
got to a certain grade, I became a training officer for a battalion. And I liked it so much. I loved building up training plans that had involved an entire battalion. But I liked it so much that I actually made that sort of my expertise where I went to the force training command and actually did course development and did all the other things you would do as an instructor or teacher would do and found I got a great deal of uh, intrinsic pleasure out of teaching way more than I ever thought I would. And so in my case, Larry, I knew it was a fit. I just knew that the more I, I got involved with education, it's not that I like being the smartest guy in the room. I'm far from it. I just like hearing a problem and then providing the student with either knowledge or the tools to actually, it's better to teach the student how to, to gain that knowledge himself or herself. I knew it was right for me, Larry, and, and uh, it came to me from the military, in the military, and I used the military benefits to be able to, like I said, land well in doing something I wanted to do when my military career was over. And education was part and parcel to being able to achieve that. So not most work does not correlate directly from credentials to job, but obviously in our work, getting a doctorate and a master's degree that fits the specialty you're teaching, it's a direct correlation. And for me, I wanted to teach logistics. I, I knew I would have good experience. I knew I could have the right education by the time I got out. And I knew it was just a matter of landing a job. And sure enough, I landed a job while I was still in. I consider myself very fortunate. As a matter of fact, Larry, I think you may have done the same thing. You may have been hired on before you fully got out of the Marines. I'm not sure, but I think that's the case, right? Yes, actually. And it's interesting that you said about the transition program. The interesting thing is I actually found this listing for the job while I was sitting in the class. And you know, in that portion, when they have the instructor that teaches you how to review the sites, like the different job sites, and they actually have a person walking you through and they're just saying, okay, here's a practice search. So a message to the audience, pay attention in those classes and actually utilize every minute that you're in there because I'm living proof. I found my job here while I'm sitting in the class. Hey, Larry, one other thing, uh, you know, one thing about being an instructor is we teach, I teach a hundred students a month. I can remember back in 2010 when I was doing a stint at CENTCOM that I took a class, American Military University class in logistics to see if I liked it. And believe it or not, my instructor was Dr. Hughes, who was still in the program. And he and I talked a great deal, and he actually gave me a lot of advice about how I should shape my logistics academic credentials and what he thought was important versus what wasn't. And so it turns out that part of why I like being a, an instructor is that little nugget that Dr. Hughes gave to me in 2010 is something that ultimately landed a position at AMU and also getting promoted to being a full professor at, at AMU. It all started from that nugget that I got from Dr. Hughes in 2010. Well, that's great to find. And, and actually you're speaking of the team that we still have together and Rope is at least giving um, you know credit to one of our esteemed faculty members that gave him that, that nugget of information. So as I get ready to wrap this up, I got two things for you. First, what I like to do is just recap the three major things that I'm taking away from this and possibly, you know, we've talked for a while and, and I want to be able to at least make sure that the audience hones in on some points that I know I took away from this. And three things that I got from your messages, one, be deliberate. 
you did not waste time. Some people might say, oh, he came in later. He may have been more mature or, or set in life. Either way, whether you come in later or you come in early, the first message I got was be deliberate because then you set up out a path to make sure you could make things happen. The second thing I got was utilize the resources. You went through a number of resources that the military, even though we had that discussion about leadership and everybody can talk of uh, whether someone's a good leader or a bad leader, the resources around the service, or at least the service provides are there. And so you made an excellent point to utilize everything that was available to you. And then the last thing, which is a point of emphasis of your mindset, was to land well. If I could coin any phrase that you left us with was prepare and plan to land well. And that goes back to more or less the other two points, be deliberate because you know what you want to do, and then utilize the resources to ensure you land well. So those are those three points. I mean, would you endorse and say that that's the message that you would leave? Larry, 100%. You, you actually got it exactly right. I would add one thing about future hiring managers. One of the things that military people carry with them, and you somehow need to market this skill set, is a military person usually performs something that we call in the military can do, meaning no matter what the task is, the best military folks are the ones that can do. In other words, the Navy has a saying, for example, if you're giving it an order and you don't understand it, you can say, yes, sir. And that means yeah, that's telling your leader that you'll get the job done. And if you don't understand, you'll ask questions, but you'll still get it done. Or you can answer by saying, aye, aye, sir. And that tells the Navy leader that not only will you do it, but you also understand it. And so that's an example where in the Navy, we build a sort of a leadership between leader and follower with a certain communication regiment that gives the follower and the leader confidence going forward. And that's one of the things that a, that a hiring manager should be able to latch on relatively quickly with a military person. And that is you can morph him or her into just about anything where you really have a need in your business, because normally the military person is can do. And that's my final word. All right. Well, Rope, this has been such a great conversation. I appreciate everything that you brought to us today. And I know the audience is much better for it. And that veteran that's looking to leave or that individual that's already left, I'm sure he can find something out of this. So thank you much for sharing your expertise today for this episode. And to our listeners, thank you for joining us. Be well and stay safe. For more information about our university, visit us at amuonline.com. Thank you for listening. AMU. American Military University.